turning this evening to Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 16 and verse 13. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. I'd like to do something unusual this evening. We've been studying 1 Corinthians and we looked at this 13th verse just a few weeks ago. Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong. But I'd like to single out those words, quit you like men. Because we probably failed to do them justice in the morning service in the sanctuary and they're much more suited to a weeknight study but they're tremendous words quit you like men some translate be courageous which is the intention of the passage quit you like men or simply play the man that's the best way of rendering them Act the man, play the man. But it's addressed to everyone, men and women equally, to play the man. But it gives us the opportunity to talk just for a few moments about manhood. Next week is our annual Thanksgiving study, and that's on future things. And then after that, hopefully, we proceed to begin another series. So this is an isolated study, Play the Man, about manhood. And you may well ask, well, when will we deal with womanhood? And the answer is, I don't know. But I have a week. I can only do one. So play the man for the present. What does it mean as it's addressed to both men and women. Yes, be courageous, be self-controlled, but there's something here for all, for everyone. Now, in recent times, there's been a lot of material, particularly on the internet, about Christian manhood. And I have to say that most of the new material or at least those elements that I've looked at are rubbish and dangerous and nonsensical, intellectually hopeless, spiritually hopeless, and morally hopeless. And yet they're becoming enormously popular. So it's important just to spend a little while looking at the biblical position of what it means to be a man, something of enormous importance. We've seen the rise since the 1990s of what is often called the patriarchy movement in America, a group of, uh, well, cult-like groups of churches, and there are a number of them that have arisen, specializing in manhood, marriage, and the family in their teaching and in their views. And the teachings of most of these 
are extreme and absurd and unbiblical. They're not enormous groups, but they make a lot of noise, and they claim an awful lot of internet space, podcasts, programs, lectures, so on, and they have their personalities, and that catches people out. People looking for something, interested in something, will come across a lot of these uh, preachers and authors and not realise that they represent an extreme. And they're utterly out of line with all traditional Christian evangelical teaching. And they've developed ideas out of context and crazily very often. So it is important, I think, to say something about them. The patriarchy churches... Now, in 1998, there was a group of people, not, not of these patriarchy cults, and they got together and decided to have in the USA a big kind of evangelical council which would deal with the subjects of Christian manhood and womanhood. And uh, they invented new terms for this, and some of them were quite well-known preachers, uh, and uh, theologians, and they laid down various principles and ideas for Christian manhood and womanhood. Unfortunately, for all the big hopes and claims and so on, their ideas were not wholly biblical and not wholly useful, and those things mislead people also, perhaps I can begin in a strange way. I think most of you will have heard of a, a preacher in the United States who has been rather discredited in recent years named Mark Driscoll. And for a time, he was extremely popular and a lot of evangelicals who should have known better supported and proclaimed him and went for him came to London, was invited by uh, uh, a big body of evangelicals and I think the Proclamation Trust people, all that type of thing, they should have known better and they organised great meetings for him. But uh, this man, uh, time showed, was uh, a bully and a cheat and a pretty outrageous person altogether. He stood for and he represented a kind of super male muscular Christianity. And he would denigrate people left, right and centre who didn't meet his mark and became for a time enormously popular with much name calling. His books became very popular too. He wrote a marriage book, Guidance on Marriage, which was a bestseller. It was awful. It advocated unclean practices even in Christian marriage and all sorts of things. He claimed to be a reform minister. He's gone back on his reform position in more recent times and denied it all. And that doesn't surprise me at all. And eventually he was exposed as being arrogant, boastful by his own church, which grew very large with many preaching campuses called Mars Hill in Seattle on the uh, uh, west coast of the USA. And, uh, but then he was caught out cheating with the publication of 
books, I won't go into the detail, details, plagiarism and all sorts of other things, and his elders turned against him, and in no time he was gone. But he started up all over again in another location with a lot of supports. Amazing. But I mention this, not just for the sake of it, because it's amazing how people can be taken in by these men. They claim to represent Christian manhood. They're not men, they're bullies. They're not strong, they're compromisers. Mark Tristall compromised on so many things. If you look at one side of his life, his compromises, you'd say he was a weakling. You look at his shouting and yellowing and bullying and bellowing, you might be fooled into thinking he was strong. And I mention this because this is the trouble. There are people proclaiming something which isn't strength. It's just outward belligerence and bullying. And those people are compromisers and weak. When you look at their churches, they've all buckled in to all the, every conceivable error and weakness that goes about in evangelicalism. They are not strong people in a Pauline, biblical sense at all. So be warned. That's what I really want to talk about a little tonight. But here's the big word for today, complementarianism. And there was a Council on Christian Manhood Womanhood in America in 1998, and it came up with this definition, that men and women, biblically, are equal in value and in status. But God has assigned to them different roles. And on the surface, it looks all right. Oh, yes, equal in value and in status, but different roles. Isn't that reasonable? Isn't that perfect? No, it isn't. It's nothing like perfect. It's utterly vague. What do you mean, equal in value, equal in status? Spell it out. Are you somebody who thinks that a woman is intrinsically inferior to a man? Well, you can still subscribe to that statement. Oh, but equal in value and in status. It's so wishy-washy and so shallow, it doesn't pin you down. It doesn't identify what you really think. And that's the trouble, that there are many people who think women are inferior to men. That God has said, that in marriage, say, the woman must submit to the man, and then they think, why? Oh, because in some way, she's inferior. And sooner or later, they spell it out, and you find they're saying, she doesn't have the decision-making equipment of a man, or she doesn't come up to the mark in this respect, or in that respect. And while they're saying, oh, but she has equal value and equal status, you find that they really do believe that simplistic and ignorant notion that a woman is intrinsically inferior. So the Council for 
manhood and womanhood, Christian manhood and womanhood didn't nail the issue. It came up with a wildly inadequate kind of way of describing the distribution of roles between men and women. And I'd like to make that clear. We have to make sure that our views are right. Needless to say, the prime mover for that council was a person whose name we know, Professor Wayne Grodin, the theologian whose whose systematic theology is so, so compromised and dreadful. And at another meeting, I was speaking about that. And then uh, Dr. John Piper, he was in on that too, and he's compromised in many different ways. And a pack of new Calvinists, new evangelicals, and even Campus Crusade for Christ, if you please. That Arminian group was involved in the definitions and the statements. So they created statements which really uh, tell you nothing. The issue is, what is the difference between men and women in the Bible? Equal in giftedness, says the Bible. Different roles, yes, but equal in giftedness, equal in intellect, equal in accountability, equal in value before God, equally precious, equally esteemed, equal in their capacity by the Spirit for access to God, equal in usability by God. A woman, a man are equal in all those ways. Not a word should ever be uttered to suggest inferiority, superiority. The vague statement of moral value isn't enough. We have to be clear. What do we really think? But is there not headship in the Bible? Yes, there is. In the scripture, it's quite clear. And in the New Testament, wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands. But you notice that in the three great texts where submission is commanded, it is also heavily qualified. The man is to love his wife, as you know, and with a sacrificial, giving love, which is analogous to the love of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ for the church. That's such a heavy qualification. It's not a one has an absolute right of command. It's one has the headship, but it plainly has to be deserved. And it's plainly under heavy qualification because he's got to love her and cherish her and care for her and help her in every conceivable way, as Christ, the church, and these things are to be in balance. And wherever you read of submission or obedience, oh, that's right, 
you read at the same time of the husband's responsibilities and cautions to him and the manner in which he is to conduct himself. And you're reminded that as husbands and wives, we are heirs together of the grace of life. That puts us on the same level in some respects. Heirs together. Not one heir who receives more and the other less, but equal heirs, equally undeserving, equally blessed, viewed together by the Lord. One will support the other, and the husband who is the head in the marriage will cherish and embrace the wife. Let me give an illustration. That terrible conflict in Ukraine, I hesitate to draw an illustration from it when it's so serious and so terrible for the people involved. But I was listening to uh, some uh, words, broadcast words by a general the other day. Uh, I'm out of my depth on these things. I'm not giving you any wisdom of mine. And this particular general was saying, and we've seen this, it is noteworthy that at the beginning of the conflict, although everyone had everything, it was all tanks and artillery. And very quickly, it became a conflict of drones. They became so significant on either side. And either side was suddenly rushing to accumulate and acquire more and more and more sophisticated drones. And although there were still tanks and still artillery, of course, now all the main effect is drones and guided missiles. The wars changed in a few weeks before our eyes in character. Now just supposing, if you'll pardon me using an illustration from it, just supposing a general on one side or the other did not like the idea of giving too much scope to his technical men. Why, he's a general. But he's got junior team staff officers who are walking around with MSc degrees and PhDs. And this general, for all his size and stature, inside himself, he's, he's an insecure man. And he feels uncomfortable surrounded by all these technocrats. So he doesn't give them the scope that their know-how and their skills merit. What will happen? Well, his side will be severely disadvantaged and behind, be behind in the conflict because he's not using the skills at his disposal. These men are cleverer than he is in many ways, are more trained than he is in some ways. He hasn't recognized it. He hasn't used them, encouraged them, deployed them. He's a fool. So is the husband, who doesn't recognize the skills and the intuitions and the capabilities of his wife. 
So is that poor little man who thinks he's being a big man, but he's being a very little man, really, because he feels insecure and threatened by his clever wife. So he towers over her. And the relationship is one of command and obedience. He's a fool. Like that general. Intimidated by the MSCs and PhDs on his staff, among his staff officers. The husband who doesn't regard his wife as being a equal to himself in gifts and in many ways and even in powers of decision, though he has the headship. He hasn't been given the headship because he's superior. He has been given the headship for a theological reason, for a practical reason too, because there has to be headship in everything. And as Spurgeon used to say, if two people ride a horse, one has to be in front. That's throughout life, that principle. There has to be a leader. Yes, there's a practical reason, but there's a theological reason why the man has the headship. What do you mean it has nothing to do with her being inferior? No, nothing. The theological reason, as I was putting in an article a few months ago, is to remind Christians and all of society of the doctrine of the fall. It so happened, historically, that Eve fell first. Not because she was weaker, perhaps she had too much initiative, Oh, but surely it was because she was weaker, so she fell first. That's your conclusion. That's not what it says in the Bible. It doesn't advance that reason, that cause. It happens that she fell first. You could say, well, Adam fell at the same time because he let her. You can argue this endlessly. But historically, she fell first. So to her fell the role of being in submission to remind everybody about the fall. The doctrine of the fall is almost, I say that guardedly, almost the most important doctrine in the Bible. You forget about the fall, there's no salvation. You don't need it. Without the fall, you don't have the gospel. Without the fall, you have eternal loss. The human race is destroyed and finished. Society at large has forgotten about the fall. And because it's forgotten about the fall, it says all men are good at heart. So nothing works, because nobody believes in the fall and sin anymore. And the disorder of society can't be helped. It's the most important doctrine, second to that of salvation itself. So there are big reminders. Oh, but that's so unfair on the woman. She has to submit to her husband to remind the church and the world about the fall. What about the man? Well, he has to earn his living by the sweat of his brow. 
course, both men and women do in a society like ours, but the first responsibility is to the man. His punishment is he's got to work. Her punishment is that she's got to submit. It's nothing to do with one being better than the other. It's a theological matter. The fall has to be written into the fabric of society and Christian society. That's what it's all about. We're not entitled to draw our conclusions and to add reasons that the Bible doesn't give for these things. So let's talk a little about strength and weakness. Once again, here's a man. He's not very strong. He may be a pastor, a church officer. He has a very low view of womanhood. He thinks as a man he's intrinsically entitled and superior and better and so on. Actually, he's very weak. He's insecure. He shouts a lot. He won't let his wife correct him. Can't stand it. He hasn't got much self-control. He doesn't know when to put away his foolish pride and listen to her. When she's entitled to say those things. He doesn't know how to maintain peace. Isn't strong enough. He thinks he's a man. By shouting her down. He thinks he's a man by never helping her out. When she's tired and exhausted, and he's got some reserves, he could well take share her burdens. He thinks he's a man by not doing so. He's not, he's a weakling. He's not a strong character at all. Hasn't got control of himself. These people who make podcasts and talk about Christian manhood, they are weaklings. They've got the wrong end of everything. The passage we read from the epistle of James, chapter 3. Look at these words at the end of chapter 3. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envying and strife is, there is confusion and every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is the husband, the Christian husband who has uh, strength, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. Aren't they beautiful words? That's Christian manhood, not bellowing. There's a preacher makes podcasts like this I'm not going to name any names from now on and uh, uh, I know he's a man who um, is a great big chap now I have to be careful here because some people are very very stocky because that's how they're made but equally there are others who are very very big because they eat the diet of four men they haven't got any self control they eat and eat and eat and eat. And I've got in mind a man like that. And he makes manhood podcasts. 
and he eats so much. And he goes to the gym, and he's a pastor. Three hours every day, because he's never conquered his pride, and he's got to look big and powerful. He's not a man. He's a slave to foolish and silly lusts and pride and things like that. Needless to say, in his church and his circle, contemporary worship, all the other things that spineless pastors give way to. And yet he's set himself up to talk about manhood, about time he started acting like a man. He needs this text, play the man. Act like a man. That's our calling. It's a lifelong struggle. Because all men are weak at heart. In many ways, women are much stronger than men. It was a woman who anointed the head of the Lord with oil, valuable, precious perfume, in the house of Simon the leper. There were three different occasions when the Lord was anointed by a woman with oil. The last one, why did the unnamed woman anoint him with oil? Said the Lord, she did it for my burial. What do you mean? A woman came up to him and poured ointment upon his head and anointed him. Yes, intellectually, she was far ahead of the disciples. She knew about Calvary. She saw what was going to happen. She knew the prophecies. She knew Isaiah 53. She could see the whole scene. And she wanted to anoint her Lord while he was still there because he was going to be crucified. And the Lord commended her and said, she did it for my burial. And she'll be remembered when everyone else is forgotten. And the disciples were dumb. They didn't understand. A woman was ahead of all the men in intellect, in courage, in action. Don't have foolish and ignorant views. We are assigned different roles. But we have to respect each other. In marriage, in the church too. Is it possible that sometimes men say, oh, a woman is doing that. I think I see a little mistake. I smile indulgently. She's only a woman. Do you catch yourself thinking like that? That's dangerous and foolish and ignorant. That's not the teaching of the Bible. She's got a hard role to submit to a husband and to a man in many ways, but it doesn't make her inferior. So respect her. Be like the wise general who trusts his more educated staff officers and makes full use of them. And uh, listen to her. Work with her. Heirs together. Work things out together. Earn your headship. That's what it's all about, dear friends. I've heard some strange things. Oh, from these patriarchy people, uh, it's almost Catholic teaching. 
Catholic Church says that the Pope is the vicar of Christ on earth, the representative of Christ. Christ funnels all his authority through the Pope. Some of these patriarchal things actually say that about husbands. The husband is the one who's in touch with God and he is Christ's representative in the home. The wife must listen to him as she would listen to Christ because he's the representative of Christ in the home. That's Catholic blasphemy. That's nonsensical reasoning. Both are equal before the throne of grace. She is to submit to him and he's to be worthy of it. And he's to be in full control as God enables him by prayer of his temper, his pride, his lusts. How many men are glued in front of televisions or other pursuits or on the phone when they should be lending a hand? Because they're weak. No, they say, this is manly. It's not his weakness. Let's align our values to the word of God. That's the thing which I'm trying to emphasize and get at here this evening. Well, friends, uh, time is going on. I'm over time. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Oh, to be more and more, all of us, if I may speak to husbands, husbands who are worthy of headship of the home and full of courtesy and kindness, consideration and understanding. These things are so precious and so vital. So many things I would like to tell you. My time is out.